Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's Accelerate Your Performance podcast. I'm your host, Janet Pilcher. Thanks for having a desire to be your best at work and help your organization achieve success. This podcast is all about actions we can take to improve workplace culture and achieve results. And they're all aligned to our nine principles framework. As the end of 2022 approaches, I would love for us to hear from three special individuals before we begin a new season of episodes in 2023. This will be a great note to end the year on as they're all examples of leaders who lead with courage and boldness. They're committed to the work of continuous improvement and are making a big difference in their organizations. These individuals were recently honored at our annual What's Right in Education Conference. Each winning a Difference Maker Award, our most prestigious award at Studer Education. This is an award we present to a superintendent or executive who has been partnering with us for at least five years. When selecting the winners, we take into account the commitment they make to people as well as to the nine principles framework in order to build a great culture and execute strategy to achieve results. So, for these last three episodes of the year, We'll invite each winner to the show and have the opportunity to hear their stories of improvement. Let's listen to their stories over the next few weeks and be inspired by them as we get ready for a new year. And with that being said, today, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Xavier De La Torre. Xavier serves as the superintendent of Isleta Independent School District in El Paso, Texas. He joined the school district nearly nine years ago. Prior to joining the district as superintendent, Xavier served as the superintendent of schools in the neighboring Socorro Independent School District. Prior to that, he served as the county superintendent of schools at the Santa Clara County Office of Education in California. Xavier has been partnering with Studer Education for the last eight years. Our work with Xavier and the Athleta Independent School District has been focused on creating a strategic plan with a scorecard and establishing employee engagement and parent satisfaction surveys and rolling out those results and getting continued feedback for the purposes of improvement. Over these years, the district has achieved unbelievable student achievement outcomes. Athleta Independent School District is an A district in Texas, and 98% of the schools in the district are earning A's and B's. Xavier also serves as the president of the Texas Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents. I'm so excited about our conversation today, and it is with great pleasure that I welcome Xavier to our show. Thank you for having me and for taking an interest. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And Dr. De La Torre, I'd like to start with just talk you talking about some of your key successes in the Isleta Independent School District and how those successes have, have occurred over the years, because you have some tremendous highlights that you can share with us. Yeah, I think the, the important thing to understand is uh, what the Isleta Independent School District represents. And I was drawn to it because it, it's an opportunity to work uh, in a relatively homogeneous environment. I like to call it the Petri dish, where nine out of 10 uh, of our students uh, are Latino, Mexican-American, first generation oftentimes, but um, we we get a nice um, spread of uh, different 
um, Latino students, one in four of them um, come to us speaking almost exclusively Spanish. So they re we refer to them as emerging bilinguals. Eight in 10 of them are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Probably three in 10, maybe two in 10, um, live in abject poverty, generational poverty. Uh, it is uh, very much a, a blue collar community, a city where um, people come uh, to chase the American dream. Mm -hmm. And I was a product of that dream uh, many years ago when my parents decided to migrate from uh, the state of Jalisco all the way to Northern California, um, not just for work, but as my mom described it, uh, uh, to provide their future children with uh, what was the best public school system on the planet back in the uh, wow. 60s and 70s. And I, I always marvel at their foresight, uh, given that my dad uh, has a third grade education and my mom has an eighth grade education. He worked in the lumber mill industry, uh, and eventually my mom was hired as uh, an aide, a teacher's aide. As the Latino population began to grow, they realized that they needed someone to interpret, to translate, do those type of things. And she tells a, a great story where she actually learned to read alongside the first and second grade students that she was there yeah. to help. So she would take some of their yeah. material uh, and do the homework that they were doing and as time went on, she eventually got to a place where she's uh, fluent in English and in Spanish, although she doesn't have uh, a formal certificate uh, to, to celebrate that. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, I, I'm doing exactly what I love to do, and that, and that is be involved in the, the institution that gave me so many opportunities, so much access, and that will ultimately do that for my children and my great-grandchildren. Uh, my brother, Felix, is 11 years younger. He's an attorney. Uh, at one time, he was the attorney for Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, my brother, Aldo, is the CEO and president of eight hospitals in California, and my sister, is uh, an accountant, a certified wow. public accountant in California. And none of that could have been possible without the, the, hmm. the decision to move to Northern California and put kids in the American public school system. And so this is my way of giving back. And when you start with that as sort of your anchor, uh, the work becomes not easy, but it becomes so rewarding and fulfilling um, from my perspective to work with a group of adults that want to do um, great things for kids, kids in this community that that want to uh, enhance uh, the quality of life that they'll live and that uh, want them to have economic prosperity beyond what their parents had, because as parents, that that's what we want for our kids. So to do that, when I arrived back in 2014, I, I was very much... Uh, a believer in in systems and uh, never deviating from those systems that you believe in. And so it was important to convene uh, the board of trustees. I have seven uh, board members uh, and go through a process that would allow us to develop a strategic strategic action plan that was uh, reflective of our beliefs and reflective of our values and what we wanted uh, for our students and for our community. So in the development of that, uh, which was a very um, inclusive uh, process, we invited uh, all stakeholders, parents, students, teachers, uh, administrators, the board and community and business leaders to go through this process 
with us to define what it means to have uh, succeeded on behalf of 42,000 students back in 2014. And once we arrived at, at the goals, at the targets that we wanted to hold um, ourselves accountable to, uh, then it became very important to start working with a studer at the time to develop um, a vehicle, an instrument, to not only monitor uh, how you were doing, but to measure and provide the kind of data we needed to know so that it would inform decisions and inform any strategies in the future. And so we arrived at three very simple goals, one that we referred to as our future, and that's uh, predominantly around our academic aspirations for students and a list of goals and annual targets over a five-year period. The second was our people, uh, and we needed to create a climate and a culture. And you've heard me say this before. Mm -hmm. I believe in I believe culture will trump uh, strategy every time, and I tend to believe team before mission. Mm -hmm. And by that, okay. I mean, I wanted to surround myself with uh, the best in the business, but they also had to have that or very similar DNA or leadership profile uh, to the one that I subscribe to. And I was very fortunate uh, in having worked uh, in El Paso back in 2009 and having met some of the best in the community at what they did. And I was able to convince them to come join me on the Isleta ISD team. And, and to do that, you have to be able to articulate a vision that gets people excited. Um, and it it really made all of the difference. Uh, that first group of people who were also part of that process, that inclusive process to arrive at our goals, targets, and then as a team, we would determine what systems, what strategies had to be in place uh, to accomplish that. And then the third um, is, you know, the uh, the nuts and bolts. You, you got to have resources. You have to uh, be very deliberate, very thoughtful about where you invest because you have infinite needs and finite resources. And so you wanted to make sure that wherever uh, you made uh, investments, whether it was in the curriculum, technology, that you were doing it for, uh, with an understanding that the re return on investment would have to be significant to reach some of the bold goals that we'd set for ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, the first part, the academic part is, I think, very easy uh, for us to understand. It's all very objective. You either met your target or you didn't. You meet the goal or you don't. And our uh, instructional framework really believes in early education programs. So we introduced uh, a program for three-year-olds. It's a half-day program. Uh, any and all students uh, are eligible. We have a full-day universal pre-K program for four-year-olds and um, five-year-olds, and then full-day kindergarten. And we felt like that would have the greatest impact on third grade um, reading scores. And one of the goals that we have, of course, is that 100% of our third grade students are reading at grade level or have mastered grade level. And that doesn't start at the third grade. Right. It felt like that starts in a third grade program uh, where they um, they get a love of learning. They understand the importance of being able to, to read and see things that they may never see. You know, we have a lot of, a, a lot of children who've never been uh, to the beach. They've never seen the ocean. Uh, they've never been to the mountains. They don't know what snow is. But with uh, getting them in early and getting them to 
have agency in what they're learning and start enjoying it was important to us. And we believe that when these students who go through the additional half year and year get to the third grade that our our test scores, our performance in third grade literacy, it's a game changer. I really believe mm-hmm. it's a game changer. Yeah. Um, we don't believe in the flavor of the day. The same things that we were doing back in uh, 2014 is the same thing you'll see in the classroom now. Teaching is hard, hard work. There are no shortcuts. No one is going to develop a program out there for you that's going to make it easy. Teaching is a people business. And so, it, you know, curriculum is important. Scope and sequence is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding the power standards is important. But ultimately, it comes down to the person in the four corners of the classroom. Okay. So that means that they need time during the day to reflect, to share, to develop lesson plans. And so in our school district, if you are a middle school, high school teacher, you get both your duty-free prep period, but you also get a professional prep period where you have your professional Mm -hmm. learning community and where you're expected to meet uh, during that period with your colleagues, with your peers, to share information about how students are performing in the class. Uh, Most of them share the same students because we believe in uh, small learning communities so that the teachers and the students get to know each other uh, very well. And if they keep the same cohort of teachers for two years in a row, we found that that really helps the relationship between the teacher and the student. And it helps the teacher really understand whether or not the student's making progress. And if not, what can we do differently? They even get to know a little bit about their personal life, their family life, and all of that helps. Uh, It's important for students to believe that their teachers uh, genuinely care for them and want to help them. So we do that at the secondary level. At the elementary school level, uh, one of the first things we did was we uh, decentralized our instructional coaches that were all located at the district office and would simply mobilize when a principal asked for help, uh, either to get a teacher to improve in their craft or a grade level or a subject matter. They would go out, they'd spend a few days out at the school, and then they'd come back and wait for the next principal to call and ask for assistance. And I felt like it's a lot like when you go away to a, a conference You go, you learn some things, you get super excited, you come back, and then oftentimes within two or three days, you've forgotten the excitement that you had when you learned this. So uh, we made the investment and uh, we introduced four new uh, positions at every one of the 38 elementary schools. Uh, We have an English language arts, reading, writing, instructional coach. Uh, Every school has a science and math coach. We have a Uh, what's called an interventionist. The interventionist uh, prioritizes uh, students that have been diagnosed with dyslexia, but will work with any student that is struggling with reading. And then finally, we have, uh, we call them tech pilots, but they're basically there to uh, help teachers learn to leverage technology as a tool to engage this generation of students. And so four times 38 uh, is about- It's incredible. It's about a $9 million investment, mm-hmm. right? But now mm-hmm. the principals, uh, in addition to having their assistant principals as uh, you know, part of their leadership team, now they actually have themselves, they have the assistant principals and the instructional coaches that are assigned to each one of these schools all become the instructional leadership team. And in the Isleta Independent School District, if, if you don't work as an instructional coach, you're unlikely to ever be selected to be an assistant principal and certainly not a principal. 
So the right. instructional coaches are bench. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's the minor leagues. That's where we find out who uh, has the promise and potential uh, to one day lead one of our schools. And because we don't have that many opportunities, I have to insist that they go through at least a couple of years, two, three years of being an instructional coach, uh, make an impact for kids before becoming an assistant principal or a principal. And so based on the instruments uh, that we developed uh, with uh, Studer's help, um, that's their area of expertise, we can, I believe, accurately measure how we're doing in those three realms, whether it's the academic realm, uh, the human uh, relations, employee relations, climate, culture realm, and then ultimately, are we are we spending money in the way it should be spent and getting the biggest rate of return on our investment as possible? And uh, I don't know if you've met Lindley, but Lindley is yeah. phenomenal. Yes. Well, your team, you're, you have yeah. uh, you've done an unbelievable job of building just a you know just a phenomenal team. And I think that, you know, I love the, I, I love hearing the underneath, Xavier. You know, I've not spent that time talking to you about what's underneath the outcomes that you want to achieve and just the, the, the thought that's gone into that. And what a great way to really build a bench of future leaders by embedding them within that instructional coaching opportunity. And I like what you said too about you expect them to achieve results. And I know, I know. In my time of knowing you, I know you're not afraid of accountability. You've never been afraid of accountability. And um, so I really wanted to, to just kind of push in here that you truly do use your scorecard with your board for them to evaluate you using those outcomes. Can you talk just a little bit about how you do that? Right. The the scorecard uh, is really the... the uh the backbone of the superintendent's annual evaluation instrument. It reflects those things that the board and the community said were important to them, whether it's academically or in terms of district culture and and climate. And that scorecard is applied at every one of the 52 schools. There is no difference. There's no uh, deviation from what lives on my evaluation instrument versus what lives on a principal's evaluation instrument, versus how I evaluate the team around me. Those are the goals. Those are the targets. That's what we we want to be held accountable to. And it cascades through the organization. So it starts with me. It goes down to uh, the level, the chiefs. I have a chief academic officer. I have a chief uh, human capital uh, management officer, and I have a chief finance and operations officer. And then they have assistant superintendents. Uh, so Dr. Chacon will have an assistant superintendent that's responsible uh, for elementary schools and one for middle schools, one for high schools. Then she has one for uh, what we call priority schools, schools that may have uh, slightly more challenges than some of our other schools and and need greater resources, more support, more coaching, more guidance. Uh, Miss Macias takes care of that. Then we've got curriculum. And then, of course, we've got an assistant superintendent takes care of all of our, our language programs. And one of the things that I'm most proud of that, that happened very quickly after we introduced the system is we used to have students, Mexican-American students, Mexican students, taking all of the state assessments in Spanish and doing very well. And for whatever reason, principals, teachers, others were not were not making them uncomfortable. 
in the classroom. And so it was much easier to go ahead and let them continue to do their assignments and learn in Spanish. The only problem was that when they got to the sixth grade, Texas no longer affords them the option of doing it in Spanish. And you'd see this cliff where these kids who we had done a big disservice to um, realized that they had to take the test in Spanish. So one of my first edicts, I guess, was that any child that came to us in pre-K or K um, you have two years to get him ready to take the test in English, which means preferably third grade, no more than fourth grade, because I'd rather have them perform lower than they would in Spanish and get an accurate account of how they're doing than to pretend that they're doing amazing and not embrace the fact that they're probably still monolingual Spanish. Yeah. And so in, in, in about a year, two years, we had almost no students who had started with us taking a test in Spanish after the third grade. And it made a world of difference. And um, it, it was one of the things I was most proud of because there were, as you can imagine, a lot of a lot of folks that thought that that was being really rigid and these poor kids, they come from poverty, they, they speak Spanish, who said they have to learn in English and they have big hearts. So teachers have big hearts, but the reality is it is a disservice to their family. It's a disservice to the student if you allow them to remain comfortable and you don't push the envelope with that second language acquisition, that English language acquisition. So that's one of the things that we talk about that we were very proud of. We're very proud of the fact that uh, almost 70% of eighth graders take algebra and pass algebra in eighth grade, not in high school anymore. You know, we're proud of the things that we're doing academically. But as I said, it still comes down to until the person in the four corners of the classroom gets better, you shouldn't expect better student outcomes. Right. You're going to help the kids, but the vehicle you're going to use is a better teacher. So we really try to impress that on all of us here at the district office. We work with adults. We make adults better, better prepared, better lesson plans, um, better scope and sequence a better understanding of the standards, and then in turn, they improve student outcomes. And, and I think that approach has been uh, relatively successful. So yeah. the scorecard is- your success. Your success is, I mean, you, you're an A district, right, Xavier? Yes. Yes. Texas Education Agency, A rated 92 out of a possible 100, the only one in El Paso City proper. So good. I mean, such an accomplishment and the work that your team and the and the people in your district have done um, unbelievable work. And that scorecard is a driver of defining those outcomes. And those actions are very aligned to what what you've done over the years. You know, the other thing that you've also been focused on and, and um, just applaud you with this as well is you're, you you've used our surveys to get the employee engagement feedback as well as parent satisfaction. And I know those two things are really important to you. You know, so why, what makes that important as part of that scorecarding process? Well, the first goal, the, the, the academic angle can be very, very objective. If we, if we create it correctly, it's numerical. It, it either happened or it didn't happen. When you start talking about culture and climate, I think it is important to be open to and transparent uh, with your stakeholders. And so it was important for us to know what uh, our teachers and employees at each of uh, the, at the time, 64 schools, how they felt 
the culture and climate was at their respective work site or school. And so they evaluate uh, the leadership team, the principal, the assistant principals on things like honesty, transparency, culture, climate. And it has to be anonymous. It has to go back to you uh, because people, uh, some people are a little uncomfortable being candid about how they feel things are going. When we started uh, working with Studer, I think uh, initially they may have been a little bit concerned, but it be quickly became evident that uh, that their responses were anonymous. And that allowed us to get uh, a true reading, a barometer, if you will, of how things were going at each of the respective campuses. But you can't have a double standard. If I want to know how the teachers feel about their principal, then I want to know how my principals and assistant principals feel about me and members of my cabinet and directors here at the central office. And so that instrument, what I love about it is it, it captures every uh, leadership position at the central office that works directly or indirectly with the principals and the schools, and it gives us our score, uh, and then one in the aggregate for the office. But knowing what they think about the superintendent's office, I think the questions are incredibly well designed. Um, and the board has made it part of my evaluation and expects that uh, that uh, Likert-like rating never dips before below a four. And thank you, God. Yeah. I've been able to I've been exactly. able to, to kind of keep it up there, 4.3, 4.5. But, yeah. and it also, I think, validates all the people around me that what they do is important to their principals. Mm -hmm. And we get uh, close to 100% participation from the schools, letting us know how, you know, the mothership is doing, for lack of a better word. And yeah. then, of course, uh, and it isn't like this everywhere, but we are in a region somewhat isolated in uh, Northwest Texas, um, where there are every school district has gone to open enrollment as a way to compete with charter schools. But the reality is, is that when everybody goes open enrollment, we've by de facto, we have to compete against one another, although the competition can be and is friendly and collaborative because parents and students have become clients. Yes. They can decide to go to your school. If you're lucky and they get they're irritated at something that happened at their neighborhood school, they'll pick another school in your district. If you're less lucky, they'll pick another district, right? And if you really irritate them, they have the option of picking parochial schools, private schools, or charter schools. So I have to remind everybody, we compete for parents and students every day. And the only way that you can prevent parents and students from considering charter schools or private schools or parochial schools is you have to put out a great product. You have to make it hard for them to want to leave. And that means their kids, have, they have to have not just a great experience, not just, you know, they like their friends and they're involved in athletics or other extracurricular co-curricular activities. But when that report card lands at home, both the parents and the students need to be proud of the growth, the progress, the achievement whatever the situation is for that youngster. And the minute that that doesn't happen, parents, and I believe this, have a right to consider mm -hmm. other options. And so I don't stomp up and down about the A to F accountability system in Texas. If it's not that, it'll be something else. So it doesn't matter to me. Just tell me what the rules are. 
what the expectations are. Uh, we've been able to modify, amend, adjust the uh, the scorecard in a way that reflects the latest accountability system. Um, and let's get to work. I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, writing letters to my congressman or to the uh, commissioner of education in Texas telling them, I don't like your accountability system. I, I'm going to get ready for the accountability system. And, and the, true, the truth is, I, I like to compete. And mm -hmm. I think we need to compete uh, because um, it isn't like the old days where if you live in this neighborhood, you really only have one option. You're going to, you know, Rosebud Elementary School down the street. You're not going to be allowed to go anywhere else because you don't live in that zip code. Today, anyone can go anywhere they want in the El Paso region, and it takes all of a day for them to transfer out of one school into another school. So uh, I harp on it a lot. Make it, you know, make it hard for parents to want to move to another school district. And in fact, one of the things that I, I take a great deal of pride in is that uh, at present, we have over 5,000 students in this school district who do not live in the Isleta wow. Independent School District, but come in, drive in. Um, their parents provide them transportation so they can go to school in this school district. That's more students than any other district uh, in this region. Uh, as an example, I think we have 800 students that go to Socorro. Uh, that live in our district, and we have close to maybe 300 students that go to El Paso from our district, and we mm. got over 5,000 students coming to us, which is, yeah. I, I think, a testament to to the experience and uh, the opportunities that their children are getting. Yeah, I don't think there's any any question about that, and all the what you've talked about so far, you can understand why they would make that choice, and your results show it. Um, that's the you know, just key to building that great competitive landscape and spirit, which you have. So going to turn the last couple of questions back to you just a little bit. Um, you know, I've known you over the years and I just, I have high regard for you as a leader. Uh, you are to me, one of the model superintendent leaders, Xavier. So I'd love to, just to get your, you know, your reflective thoughts on, you know, what, what do you feel makes a good leader today in K-12? I used to get in trouble all the time in class uh, <laughs> because I I would uh, I would take the position that that leaders are born that they're not made and yeah you know, since that time I've reflected on it and I think people can become better leaders um, they can be educated to become better leaders but I think good leaders are people that lead themselves first they're disciplined between in that six inch space between your ears. They're disciplined, they know what they stand for, they know what they value, they know what they believe in, they, they're excited uh, about the work that they're doing, they're genuine, right? And I, you know, I've said it before, you know, being genuine in general has been a, a very big positive in my life. And sometimes being genuine, I've gotten myself in trouble, but I am who I am. And I think leaders are who they are. And, Doing the kind of work we do for kids in a very, I think, challenging environment, especially these days, you can't fake it. You either you're either there for the right reason, or you're not. And if you're not, um, you'll be discovered in a very short period of time, because it really takes discipline. I think it takes uh, high energy these days. I think you have to be a diplomat. Di very diplomatic. And I think the most important skill that uh, a leader must have or must cultivate is communication, the ability to communicate 
effectively uh, in a way that influences, engages people. I, I think in addition to communication, you have to you have to know your stuff and people will recognize when you really don't know what you're talking about. So that's important. Um, and then I think you have to be approachable and keep your mouth shut sometimes and listen, yeah. you know, and and I think too many people see leadership as sort of this authoritarian role. It's not. I think other people see leadership as this, you know, romantic uh, knight rides in on a white horse and saves everybody. It's not. Um, I like to tell people, um, if you can't tell who the superintendent is when I'm with my group, I've done my job because mm-hmm. I have distributed um, my leadership um, and I I appreciate seeing that team do the work and I don't need to get the credit for it. I love being part of a, a collect, a collective, a group of people who are like-minded, who kind of share some of the same philosophies about instruction, teaching and learning systems, um, and watching them grow. You know, Brenda was once a teacher oh. in, in the school district with me. Lindley worked for the city. Uh, very, very bright, bright women. Bobby uh, was a counselor in the district. Um, I mean, I can go on and on. And mm-hmm. I think when people say, how do you do it? That's my secret sauce. I think I intuitively recognize talent, potential, mm-hmm. promise, and I hire well. Yes. And, and it makes all the difference. You know, I tell principals, if you hire your neighbor's cousin, <laughs> right, it, it's like this. 90% of kids in the classroom want to do well, behave, follow the rules. 10% of the kids are going to take 90% of the assistant principal's time. Mm-hmm. The same is true of employees. 90% of your employees want to do a good job. They want to be good teachers. They want to learn. 10% uh, will take up 90% of HR and the principal's time because they're, it was a poor hiring decision. You hired right. for the wrong reason. And so hiring is, is yeah, identifying yes. people right away and knowing who is just going to be such a gift uh, has really helped me in my career, not just here, but in other school districts. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, your the your, your team is. I talk. I use you as an example, and your team as an example of, you know, just a well-rounded, good hiring team that produces results and works together really well. So you should be really really proud of that. You know, I think we'll close today because, um, you know, congratulations with being the new president of the Texas Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents. And um, I know that has to be a big accomplishment for you. And just, you know, what are just kind of your high level goals as president in the state? I hope to grow the membership. I think given that, you know, 53% of the students in Texas are Latino, and that is not reflective in school leaders across the state. Mm-hmm. I'd like to grow the membership by providing, um, you know, indispensable value. And, and that comes in the form of our mentor-mentee program, where we pair up uh, with one, two aspiring uh, administrators that are part of Talas, and we go through a curriculum, and it's a, a two-year program, and uh, we cover it from you know soup to nuts. Uh, I would also like to see uh, greater representation from the El Paso area. Right now, the board is comprised of a lot of uh, great people. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but most of them are centered around 
the San Antonio Houston area and, and you find very few people involved in mm. Dallas uh, up here in uh, West Texas or in the uh, the Panhandle and, and other areas of Texas that have a lot of Latino school children. Uh, yet most of our leadership is sort of pooled down in those large urban areas. So I'd like to expand uh, the reach of Talas. And then the big one coming up is, I, I'm going to find out here very quickly, uh, how much of a voice uh, we really have during uh, the Texas legislative session mm -hmm. that starts in January when we go in and advocate and champion uh, for our kids and for Latino educators across the state. That will be, I think, a, a good barometer reading of how much influence, how much weight Talas currently has. And then based on that, then we can set some goals and some targets uh, for the, you know, the future of the organization um, and see whether or not we can become the preeminent uh, organization for Latinos interested in uh, becoming principals, assistant superintendents, and even superintendents, and taking agency for the kids in those schools, and also serving as great role models for those kids in those schools that anything uh, can be accomplished. Heck, if I got here, anyone can do it. <laughs> well, what a great, um, I mean, what a great opportunity for you. And if anyone can move that organization forward and grow and expand to help students in the most significant way you can do that i mean you're the you're a leader who can really do that you know i just think um xavier you know back to your first story you know your parents i'm thinking about your brothers and sisters too i didn't know you know all that about the success of your brothers and sisters all that what you've done i mean i know that that you know they've had to look back and say wow how proud they are you know of what they were able to accomplish with building a family as they did and providing their kids with great opportunities. And for you to give back and provide kids with that same opportunity is admirable. I just appreciate the work that you do so much and the work that you and your team does to make a difference in the lives in your community with your kids and your families. Thank you. Thank you, I'll tell them on behalf of all of them because it really is all of us. and. Uh... We, we've appreciated uh, our partnership with you, our friendship with you, and, and the work we've done together to, to measure what matters. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. I appreciate Xavier's time with us today. I have the utmost respect for him and his team in the Isleta Independent School District. I have had the honor and privilege to watch them in action and they are truly some of the best leaders serving their community in the best way. I so appreciate them and appreciate the time that he has spent with us today for all of us to learn from him and his team. So I thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Performance. We invite you to share this episode with a friend or colleague who you think will enjoy it. We would also love to connect with you on social media you can follow Accelerate Your Performance on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. There you'll get a peek of upcoming episodes as well as leadership highlights and takeaways from the podcast. I look forward to connecting with you next time as we continue to focus on the nine principles framework so that we can be our best at work. Have a great week, everyone.